Welcome to the Progress Texas Happy Hour. Welcome to the Progress Texas Happy Hour. I'm podcasting director Chris Mosier, and the episode you're in for today has been in production for a few weeks as we've been going relatively nuts around here with the primary and everything else involved with an election year in Texas, and that's a lot. This one involves the environment in Texas, very important to us here at Progress Texas, obviously, and the energy sector of Texas, which clearly has massive impacts on our environment in many different ways. As we get started, there's been a major move in the environmental realm by the Houston Chronicle, the main news outlet in our biggest city of Houston, in the form of an editorial in support of President Joe Biden's move recently to temporarily pause the permitting of new liquefied natural gas or LNG export terminals. This is a move we've advocated strongly for and also applaud. To quote from the editorial, President Biden's environmental record is arguably his signature domestic achievement. No president in the modern era has more deftly walked the tightrope of balancing our short-term energy security, record oil and gas production, along with declining prices at the pump with aggressive decarbonization investments. Clearly a move for the president with major impacts and benefits here in Texas, and we're celebrating this show of support by the Houston Chronicle. But on with the pod, which is on the topic of the Texas Railroad Commission, a three-member body that largely runs the show when it comes to the Texas energy sector, and in particular, the commission's mismanagement of a recent environmental incident in Crane County, and more broadly, the commission's lack of attention to the major threat that produced water poses to the Texas of the future. We'll talk shortly with Texas water resource expert Alex Ortiz, executive committee member and water resources chair of the Sierra Club's Lone Star chapter. But we start with Bill Burge, whose profile has risen quite a bit since we recorded this talk a few weeks ago. Interestingly, this conversation led to Progress Texas endorsing Bill in his run for the Democratic nomination for the Texas Railroad Commission. Progress Texas advocacy fellow Tatum Owens joined me for both of these conversations. For the last couple of months, an environmental disaster has been unfolding in the remote West Texas oil patch of Crane County, that's south of Midland, Odessa area, uh, as a still unexplained geyser of produced water erupted from an abandoned oil shaft and flowed to the surface for weeks before it was finally contained, supposedly a few days ago. Yeah. While produced water might not sound super scary to most of us, it's truly gross stuff. This is water that is a byproduct of the petroleum extraction process, which is then injected back into the ground for storage for disposal. Produced water contains high levels of saline and chemicals known to be harmful for both plant and animal life, and a huge volume of this stuff is thought to have flowed out in this incident over the last few weeks. We're going to start off today with Bill Birch, a longtime petroleum expert and consultant here in Texas with specific expertise in oil wells, the capping of oil wells that are no longer producing and what happens when that process goes wrong. Bill just happens to be a candidate for the Texas Railroad Commission who may or may not have attempted to hide the Crane County incident from the public. And we'll get to that. Bill Birch, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for having me on. Absolutely, Bill. Let's start real quick with your expertise in Texas oil and how that expertise sets you up to understand what's happened in Crane County. Absolutely. So I've been in the oil and gas business for 23 years. I'm a third generation driller and I have worked in over 60 plus countries around the world. And I was one of the people who helped end the Deepwater Horizon oil spill back in 2010. Uh, I'm an oil well firefighter and I have spent the last uh, 16 years in the uh, oil well disaster um, legacy side of our operations of emergency response and uh, capping and dealing with uh, events that are out of control. Well, thank you for your service. And the way that we understand it, most and most civilians understand it, is this spill of produced water is the result of containment failure of sorts. In simple terms, this gross fracking byproduct did not stay where its producers expected it to stay. And it's gushed out in a different place altogether. Give us a little more technical view of what happened. Sure. So what's happened in Crane County uh, is a very interesting scenario. In Crane, Ward, Reeves, and Pecos counties, there is a uh, large volume of the produced water that is being re-injected for long-term isolation waste disposal in the area. And... We have a history of wells that were drilled from the turn of the century, uh, even through into 2000s, that before the shale revolution occurred. 
and before we had this problem of all this additional produced water that kind of came online in 2008. Most of these wells that were plugged during that time period, um, let's just say the Railroad Commission didn't use state-of-the-art technologies, didn't verify, didn't test, and almost guaranteed didn't witness any of the actual plugging jobs that have occurred. So what's happened is that as this water pressure has increased in the volumes and the duration of time now that we've been injecting, the water is finding every single path of least resistance, which unfortunately now is coming through all of these old oil wells that are drilled throughout these four counties. And look, there's there's something like 1.2 million oil wells in the state of Texas. It's just this area at the moment is the ground zero for what's happening. Two years ago, we had our very first one erupt to surface at the, the infamous zombie wells of the Antina Cattle Company um, that have come back. They're dead wells that were supposedly plugged, shouldn't have any. I mean, we knew they weren't done right, but they weren't, they weren't high risk. And two years ago, we discovered that they are flowing. They are now bringing this toxic radioactive isotope-laden produced water up into the surface and into our groundwaters. When what's happened uh, recently is that we have had just south of the Antina Cattle Company on FM 329, just east of Grand Falls, we've had one rupture all the way to surface on its own on December 7th of 2023, which the Railroad Commission claims is now plugged uh, temporarily. We'll see how long it lasts until the next one pops up, um, which is uh, something in the order of six weeks to contain this incident and uh there's a lot of issues uh it, just so i understand bill we're talking about a really really nasty toxic material byproduct that is being crammed back down into the same ground where our groundwater is where the aquifers are where our, the, the wells that service our homes and businesses and whatnot come up from municipal water systems use some of this water as well so we're to trust that the texas railroad commission has properly overseen the injecting of this disgusting water basically straight into the ground how confident are you that this uh, this plugging and this particular incident we're talking about in crane county was done correctly and completely and how confident are you overall that this entire operation has been overseen in such a way that we shouldn't be fearful of this stuff getting into our drinking water <laughs> wow. So let's start with the first part of that uh, challenge, which is the fact that this water is being disposed throughout the entire state. Uh, West Texas, however, happens to be the largest volume of about 18 million barrels a day of produced water. Remember that West Texas produces just under 6 million barrels of hydrocarbon a day. New Mexico is also dumping across from Eddy County into Loving County and dumping it into Texas. Oklahoma is dumping across the Panhandle, and Louisiana is now also moving water uh, into East Texas. So this is a complete statewide problem. Completely and across the entire state of Texas, we're managing about 24 to 26 million barrels of water a day. Nobody really knows uh, the actual numbers because the work mission doesn't track it. The water itself is, as you just said, it is a very, very salty brine. It can vary depending on the production and where it's produced. It sometimes has oily wastes. Um, it's certainly going to have things like water-soluble organics like benzene, um, and it certainly has the full periodic table of the heavy metals such as arsenic, cadmium, lead, mercury, zinc, chromium. And it has some interesting things like lithium and cadmium and vanadium and nickel and copper. Um, but also, it also contains radium-226 and 228, which are both radioactive isotopes that are part of the uranium series that unfortunately take 10,000 years to become at a low enough threshold uh, of concern. So this is the kind of stuff that when you get it on surface, and if you live in West Texas, this will kill mesquite. And if you live in East Texas, this will this will wipe out Yopon. So, you know, this stuff is uh, incredibly toxic. It is, uh, it is fatal in uh, large concentrations because not only the minerals, but the salts. Uh, and it has all kinds of salts in it as well. It's not just sodium chloride. It's got magnesium chloride, calcium chloride. The issue... First, with the Crane County scenario, is that the area is bigger than the city of Houston. Houston's about 426,000 acres, and the area that we have seen already with contamination is over half a million acres uh, and growing. And of the wells over the last two years we've been able to survey and take a look at, there's at least 150 wells that we have found that are currently in a state of failure. 
Knowing the fact that these old wells are literally a dime a dozen everywhere you look around the middle of Odessa, even up into the New Mexico region of the Permian, uh, and knowing that these aren't plugged very well, this problem is just kind of at its infancy a problem before we're really getting to it. How confident am I about the railroad commission is the third part of your question in terms of plugging this? Well, again, they didn't hire a professional well control company. They certainly allowed for no external transparency during the event to confirm what they were doing and how they were doing it. They have intentionally tried to hide uh, information and have been uh, very actively uh, trying to be covert in what they are doing, uh, which is really as an agency who's supposed to be representing the people of Texas, um, doesn't feel like they're really you know, doing the best for everybody in long-term issues here in Texas. So the biggest challenge we have in the industry is that in order to still continue to produce the Permian from the shale reservoirs, we have to find places to put this water. And as you said, the problem is that we have to dispose of this water. Now, we have two choices in the Permian. We can either dispose deep below the unconventional resource, the oil shale play of the Permian. But the problem with injecting it into the Ellenberger, which is really, really deep, is that it's very expensive and you only get so much rate per day uh, without a really a lot of effort to get it there. So it's not a very actively produced or injected into interval it's also believed to be the mechanism, about 15 to 20% of our daily production uh, injection rates gets put into the Ellenberger. It's believed to be what's causing the earthquakes in West Texas. So there's been a lot of pushback about trying to put more water deep because they think it's lubricating these old fault lines that are existing in the Permian Basin. And that's what's caused three of the five biggest earthquakes that the state has ever seen in its history that have occurred in the last 18 months. Bill, let me stop you and tell me what the Ellenberger is. Most people don't know what that is. So the Ellenberger is a formation. It's it's a very, very old formation. It runs through a good portion of the state and in lots of areas around central Texas, it's actually our groundwater interval. It's actually fresh water. When you get out to West Texas and you get into the way the geology is, it's very, very deep. And the Ellenberger in those situations is a water wet interval that's typically not hydrocarbon bearing and we've been using it as a disposal zone. Now, the other thing is that 80% of the water that we are handling, unfortunately, we're disposing into the shallower reservoirs, which sit above the Permian oil zone. And these are what are causing all of the the cross flows and the contamination intervals. Because again, we have thousands and thousands and thousands of wells that have been drilled in the Permian since the turn of the century. But again, in 1950, 1960, well, we didn't. We didn't, we drilled them okay, but we didn't necessarily cement them and make sure we had good isolation. And unfortunately, when these walls were plugged, well, the Royal Commission didn't verify and validate any of the plugging jobs. So we've got a real mess on our hands uh, in the case of West Texas and what's happening right now in the four cameras. So let's talk about you and what others have seen as a cover-up of the Crane County spill. The Texas Railroad Commission asked the FAA for a no-fly zone over the spill, and that request was granted, citing safety concerns, though the main way journalists would have been looking in would have been with unmanned drones. Bill, tell us your view of this move by the commission. Well, so that was, uh, it was the only second time I'm ever aware that the Texas Railroad Commission has ever filed filed for a no-tam or a no-fly zone. Uh, the first time they did it was after the first blowout that happened 400 yards to its west of the latest incident. 400 yards, not miles, 400 yards west of the latest incident that uh, was called the Crane County Geyser. And this was a well on January 1st of 2022 was discovered that was flowing uh, somewhere between 24 to 30,000 barrels of this toxic radioactive produced water at surface about 150 feet in the air. Uh, and what was quite remarkable about that was that this was a well that nobody knew, wasn't in the records, and couldn't find. Uh, we believe that it was a core test well that was drilled in the late 1950s by Gulf Oil, and Chevron took ownership uh, under the circumstances being that it's maybe their uh, legacy uh, asset. So the thing about this is that when you start to look at the size and the scale of these wells around this area... Um, we have got a problem that, again, is enormous in terms of its size, its uh, aerial extent. And the biggest problem I see from the industry side is that the Railroad Commission, even though they've seen the warning signs and saw the first scenarios of the zombie wells, the idea that this was new, well, that was uh, 
that was something that we have now learned and come to find out that operators have been aware in this region that this has been an ongoing problem for almost 20 years. So the fact that the Rare Commission has had cognitive knowledge of these water issues and challenges wasn't new. So what's quite surprising is that when I went to the Rare Commission's office in September of 21, thinking, how could I help these guys get ahead of the narrative? How could I help them address the bigger issues? Um, they had no interest in wanting to resolve or tackle it or deal with it. The fact that the Rare Commission is not publicly working in either a transparent mode to show the public of how they're trying to address this underlying cancer, uh, instead of just treating all the symptoms every time another one ruptures to surface, uh, is really quite remarkable. And then on top of that, I think what's got me probably the most surprised is that when you try to get any kind of public transparency or accountability for actions, uh, for what's happening out there, or to be able to have media reporting or ability to understand what is the Rare Commission's next steps in terms of dealing with this cancer, they willfully and intentionally uh, refuse to acknowledge, willing, they refuse to address public landowners' concerns for other wells that are in the state, and they have done nothing in two and a half years now of any kind of diagnostics or forensic works to understand the size and the scope of the problem. And, and what's most concerning to me as a Texan, and take away the technical side of this, is that this game of whack-a-mole that they're playing, we don't know how much this is going to cost every single Texan. This ghost well that happened on December 7th of 2023, the Rural Commission spent $2.5 million on a well that doesn't exist in their database. And the fact that they're not telling us, that, that is, this a, is this a $100 million problem to fix this issue? Or is this a multi-billion dollar problem between Crane County, Ward County, Pecos County, and Reeves County that's already growing? We have no idea how, in the industry... How we're going to tackle it because we don't have the forensics or the the uh, root causes yet identified as to what are the real issues of the problems. That's a little bit unsurprising in a way, considering just the general opaqueness of the Texas Railroad Commission. I mean, starting with their name, they don't deal with railroads. They deal with energy. They deal with enormous amounts of money. And as we're learning, they deal perhaps not completely competently with environmental issues. So, Bill, uh, as we mentioned at the top, and as we really haven't hit too much uh, up to this point, you're actually running right now for the Texas Railroad Commission. You're a candidate uh, as a Democrat. Uh, you do have a primary challenger. Uh, tell us uh, kind of broadly about, you know, outside of what we've already discussed, which is already a lot, and we thank you for the great information. By the way, I want to mention that Bill is coming to us live from uh, outdoors in Dallas is why you're hearing the tweeting of uh, lovely birds there. Looks like a nice, if a little bit chilly day uh, there in Dallas. A little cool. Tell, <laughs> tell us, uh, tell us broadly about you know what is the Texas Railroad Commission? Why should we be concerned with it? What would you plan on trying to change about it? Should you be elected? Well, so the Texas Railroad Commission is the agency, as you said, that really manages our entire energy infrastructure. It manages our oil and gas operations uh, in terms of everything from permitting to lease agreements to surface rights to uh, the production capacity and, of course, regulation of the industry. It also manages all 330,000 miles of pipeline that's installed in the state of Texas. And what a lot of people don't remember is, is that the Rare Commission also is in charge of the lignite and coal mining operations, mostly in sunset phase. Now they're mostly at the, at the wrapping up period and decommissioning side. And we also had uranium mining operations in the state of Texas, which they also o oversee and manage. So really what the Railroad Commission is, is the agency, unfortunately, people still think it has to do with the railroads. They handed that, all that responsibility to TxDOT in 2005. Uh, and what this race and what this, uh, this agency really manages is the ability to regulate our natural energy supply and safely getting it to market. Now, one of the things I think the Railroad Commission should additionally add to your audience, just for aware awareness, is that right now, because there is no agency that manages wind, solar, or battery installations, um, I think the Railroad Commission should also be the regulatory body for all three of those capacities. Because again, there's a decommissioning side and the landowner agreement, and make sure that bonding is paid for and correctly for future decommission costs. And in the and for geothermal resourcing, the Texas Railroad Commission does handle it because geothermal. Uh, is an in-ground resource. So that's something that the Rural Commission does handle in terms of the geothermal side. 
In terms of why I'm running for the race, well, I got to tell you, as the first responder to the very first two zombie wells out at the Antigua Cattle Company two years ago, uh, I am truly gobsmacked by the uh, scenarios that I've seen in somebody who's worked all over the world. The conditions I saw in West Texas uh, are some of the worst I've ever seen. They're, they're amongst the worst of any place I've ever seen in the world. And as somebody who lives in Texas and wants to see a future Texas that is successful in our energy economy, but also environmentally sound and helping to deal with these legacy issues, um, I have to run for office. In, in 2022, I almost ran and I decided that it wasn't right for me. And I really had high hopes that Luke Warford would have uh, the opportunity to get elected. He wasn't. Uh, and at this point, without having had a Democrat in the Texas Railroad Commission for over 50 years, and the fact that every single Republican in this state seems to not give a damn about our environment, um, the only way to make an impact at this was to physically take the time for a year myself to try to bring public awareness and education to the importance of dealing with our legacy issues in oil and gas and helping clean up our contamination and our past mistakes that we, we've left several in the ground that are going to be hard to fix, but we're going to do it. Uh, we have this significant problem today of the produced water earthquake issue. And then we've got to correctly navigate the future of our energy transition. So the ability to be able to kind of thread the needle through all of these three bullet points and get us successfully into the next century, this is, this is why I'm running. There's nobody else that is in the industry that has my experience or knowledge, technical, technical background and education. Um, unfortunately, railroad commissioners are not required to actually have any oil field job experience. Um, you know, if you were a DA, you at least have to be an attorney. If you were a judge, you'd have to be an attorney. But to run one of the most powerful agencies that manages 8% of our GDP, $26 billion of royalties, and over 2.2 million jobs, you could be a Grammy award-winning gospel singer. So <laughs> I just think that, you know, there's something to be said Wait, about I- I had no idea you were a Grammy award-winning gospel singer. Is that true? Well, I'm not, but unfortunately, Mr. Christian, who is one of our commissioners who was elected in 2022, that was oh, his uh, campaign okay. qualifications. Gotcha. So, uh, you know, this is where realistically the industry needs regulation. We know in the industry that we need better regulation. There's nothing that uh, is negative in terms of having high quality regulations and enforcement of the rules to make sure that all, everybody's acting correctly. And I say, a lot of people say, no, no, you don't want regulation in the industry. And I say, great, go jump on your local highway, do a 150 miles an hour and call the sheriff and tell me, tell me what his response is when you call and turn yourself in for speed. Right, right. So I agree. The conditions in West Texas are horrific and safely getting the energy supply to market includes keeping people employed. I personally agree that having a background in the oil industry would be vital to this role. And most of my family works out in West Texas. So people just need to know that like these jobs are very dangerous and separate from the environmental and energy needs that we have. We need to protect workers out there and overall adding in regulation would help that. So what could you do as a commissioner to protect our workers out in West Texas? So one of my biggest things is after the Deepwater Horizon, I committed very heavily to prevention. And I didn't want to see another Deepwater Horizon ever again in my career. Uh, Right now, the rate of failures that we have is unacceptable. And it's been unacceptable for 13 years since the Deepwater Horizon. The industry has not actively, although they put a lot of lip service to saying they've changed the same people, the same rigs, the same technology, and the same training, and expecting a different outcome. I think you could probably use that as the definition of insanity. We've had in the state of Texas alone 10,190 uh, reported spills of produced water uh, over the last decade. We've had over a thousand blowouts uh, over the last decade, and we have had countless fatalities, injuries, and accidents, of which many are not reported. Uh, and to me, this lack of transparency stems from the start and the top of the Texas Railroad Commission, that the agency's responsibility is not to sell its services to those who contribute to campaign contributions and to only be a rah-rah supporter of the oil and gas industry. This is about the general public's protection, about the landowner and surface owner's protections, and of course, the workforce's protections by having a true whistleblower program for employers and employees who get injured that don't have a way to actually report specific scenarios. I always like to say as an engineer, you can't fix what you can't measure. So we have to really understand and how to target our resourcing correctly for what are the biggest issues in the state of Texas. 
Is it about improving our transportation or spill, spill capacity? Or is it really about truly the number of incidents and people and the injuries that occurred? Now, look, this isn't an industry of zero risk. This is an industry inherently that is of risk, whether it is drilling a wildcat well and having no discovery and having a loss of capital, or whether it's putting people in harm's way to some degree. But we have to use those risks intelligently, and we have to do everything we can to reasonably make the risk as low as practicable. It's, it's called an alert, as low as reasonably practicable. In our, and in Texas, we don't even follow the federal guidelines for alert. We, we have a tendency to think we're our own thing. It's the way we've always done it. We don't need to improve. And as somebody who's been in this business and drilling for the last 23 years, I, I know lots of folks that have been in this for now over 50 years who say they can't believe the current status of the industry, how many accidents and injuries and simple mistakes are being relearned and, and not being truly incorporated into our training program. So the Texas Rural Commission needs to be a really active participant in the regulatory compliance and getting enforcement capacity of those who don't participate correctly in the state of Texas. And it's for everybody. It, it, this isn't about a anti-fossil fuel narrative by any means. This is about letting people know that they can go to work, have a great career and income in the energy sector, and go home safely and, you, and change our community's uh, perception of the reputation of how we produce energy in the state of Texas. And, and I like to say to folks, like, look, I'm a conservationist. A conservationist is somebody who believes in environmentalism that's in balance with our needs for uh, energy extraction or resource extraction. And I and a lot of people say, oh, you're just an environmentalist. No, there's a balance point between the two of them. And we have to be much more reflective. The current way that we have done it for the last 50 plus years is to basically remove every single environmental stewardship requirement and every single possibility of environmental enforcement to allow people to be the most profitable and to yield the most recoverable resources we can. But we're leaving one hell of a legacy by doing that, and we have to change. And a lot of folks who say, well, I'm a, a drill baby drill mentality. Oh, okay, let's go drill at Yellowstone. It's great ge geothermal resourcing. Let's go set rigs up and drill all over Yellowstone. And they say, well, no, <laughs> hang on a second. That's a national park. Oh, so right. you mean you actually do believe in conservationism because suddenly there is something about the environment at Yellowstone that seems to be protected. So we, right. we have to have the change of the narrative in the conversation about how we're doing this, where these, what's the impact to our communities, especially in areas that have been marginalized and have been, to be honest with you, you know, 50 years ago, 80 years ago, when we drilled oil and gas, it was out in the farmer's back 40. Well, today, if you look around Houston, Texas, the farmer's back 40, Sugarland, which was once called Sugarland because of the sugar cane fields, right? The, the subdivision has now developed so far out, it's past the oil fields that were once in Sugarland, right? We right. look around Dallas-Fort Worth, you look around Austin, you look around San Antonio and Bear County, the city has grown into and past the old oil fields. So we have to be acknowledging that there are times and places for extraction and resources and such. We have to do a much better job now in terms of how the community and the risk to environment and to locals uh, when we're operating what does that look like? And that means improving our environment and stewardship. That's all great, great stuff. And uh, you've led me to a question which you kind of already answered, really. Uh, but we've had, uh, you know, we talked to a lot of office holders and candidates uh, on this podcast feed. And uh, one recently said something really interesting uh, to me. And that is that uh, a great many of these petroleum industry workers that you're talking about uh, have been successfully convinced by the Republican Party that Democrats and environmentalists, and I would even maybe say conservationists, just want to get rid of their jobs. They want to run them out of work. Uh, and uh, again, as Tatum mentioned, you know, these these people are, are career people with a risky job, and it's a super, super important to our state. Tell us uh, what you would say to those folks working in that industry, outside of what you've already said, which is you want to look out for their safety and the viability of their careers. Uh, what would you say to those folks in response to this Republican talking line that uh, convinces them that Democrats are a bad thing for their jobs. That's 100% correct, especially around the Rio Grande Valley, uh, where a lot of people are working in Eagleford. We've seen a massive shift of the Latino community into the Republican Party because of the fear and the risk of losing their job or opportunity for a career or lifetime wealth. And that that is a true statement. The one thing in particular I would say about that is that we have to do a better job at the Democratic Party to get away from the national narrative, which is anti-fossil fuel, carbon-only carbon, carbon only conversation. In Texas, 
And again, this is one of the things I have been focused on in my campaign. This is about Texas. This isn't about California. This isn't about the White House. And this isn't about the East Coast narratives. Yes, we are in a transition period and we will be over the next century for sure. And we're going to continue to be. And we can decarbonize a lot of capacities of our energy production side. But there's still a part of being able to produce all the products that we love every day, which is paints and plastics and pharmaceuticals and nylons and everything we have in our lifestyle. That's still part of the petrochemical side of the house, which still needs a long chain hydrocarbon molecule, which still comes from oil. And we have allowed the Republicans to propagate this false narrative that every Democrat is out to take your job and destroy the industry and that there's no future in oil and gas or energy in particular. Let's not even say just oil and gas. That there's no career future hope for you if you vote as a Democrat. And that's a that's a false narrative. That's not a correct scenario. And again, I have been across the state advocating for the need of this is a Texas conversation. This is about Texas's energy sector. This is about the future of Texas and how we need to address it as we continue to supply energy to the market and as the as the transition continues to occur. But again, you know, the hardest part is you're, you're fighting a, a, a larger message at a uh, very localized level for people to try to hopefully see the difference. But it, it is very true. We have lost a lot of Democratic voters um, due to this false Republican uh, lie that uh, every Democrat's out to destroy your opportunity in the energy sector. Right on, which is part of the reason we are super happy to have talked to you today. Uh, Texas petroleum expert and Democratic candidate for the Texas Railroad Commission, Bill Birch from Dallas. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. It's, uh, it's great to talk to you guys. And again, I look forward to uh, after the primaries here uh, coming back on and we can talk a lot more about it. So many other issues in Texas. We have a plethora of energy conversations to uh, certainly be had and to help educate and get people to understand the importance of the Texas Railroad Commission, the only executive race in 2024 and number four on your ballot. And if this is the one, this is the one cycle you get just enough oxygen in the room to actually have a real conversation about energy and how it really affects every single Texan. So I look forward to coming back on and talking to y'all uh, again very soon. Thank you, Bill. Up next, Sierra Club associate and environmental attorney Alex Ortiz in a conversation we should note was recorded before the Crane County produced water spill was supposedly plugged. Stick around for that. Here at the halfway point, a quick reminder for you to hit our web store at progresstexas.org. It's always open. You can choose from Y'all Means All, Revolution, or our most popular Humans Against Ted Cruz t-shirts. They're union-made right here in Texas, of course. With your purchase, you're supporting our important work and looking great doing it. Again, the web store and other ways to support our ongoing mission can be found at progresstexas.org. Alex Ortiz, Sierra Club Lone Star Chapter Executive Committee Member and Water Resources Chair. Thanks so much for joining us, Alex. Yeah, thank y'all for having me. So, Alex, everyone knows about oil spills, and a spill of produced water seems pretty easily dismissed for people who don't understand what produced water is. Tell us what's in that stuff and why this spill is a big deal. Yeah, so produced water is the byproduct of the fracking process. It's also called fluid oil and gas waste in different parts of Texas law. I can see why they changed the name. Produced water's a lot friendlier. <laughs> right? Yeah, seems like a resource rather than, you know, potentially hazardous waste. Yeah, there, there's a ton of chemicals, some of which are proprietary and don't have to be disclosed to any agency if they're, you know, trade secrets and protected by producers. There's all kinds of uh, potential radioactivity concerns, depending on the region that it's coming from. Uh, and, and the chemicals that actually get put into the water through the fracking process predominantly are things that, that are supposed to alleviate concerns of fracking, right? So that make fracking easier. That could be something that makes it, you know, the land underneath, or I guess the ground actually split open a little bit easier. It could be something that turns, uh, different sort of rock groups into a slurry to make it get out of the way of of releasing the natural gas process. And 
all of these chemicals are are fairly unknown and understudied, right? There's no comprehensive list of chemicals in produced water that exists, right? No one has that information. The Railroad Commission doesn't have it. EPA doesn't have it. That's just sort of a big blind spot of, of what happens in the fracking process. And what we do know is that, you know, this water, it, it comes back up in the fracking process. And if wells aren't properly plugged afterwards, like like we've seen in this news story, it can keep happening afterwards, too. So are we are we thinking this is uh, just to, so I can kind of picture this? This is water that's been injected into the ground and naturally, as water does, is going to find a way, the you know, the path of least resistance to come back to the surface or wherever it wants to go. Is that's what happened here? Is it, it it's basically just yeah. pop, popping back up under pressure? Yeah, that's exactly correct. So typically when we see well sort of well situations like this, it tends to be the actual leftover produced water that's already come up once in the fracking process. And then it goes into what's called a disposal well. And this is essentially saying that this water is so poisonous, we can't use it for anything else. And we're going to put it in a well and we're going to cap it. And there we go. It's It's safe, supposedly, tucked away from potential harm to aquifers or land or people or animals. This conversation, Alex, is the first time that I've learned that there's radioactivity involved. And and what you're talking about with a storage facility, clearly I start thinking about nuclear waste, which is a hugely controversial uh, and, and carefully dealt with sort of thing. Yeah. You're not just going to inject nuclear waste back into the ground and hope it stays where you put it. That's basically what they're doing with this water. They're just hoping it stays put, right? So the the radioactivity is is not quite that severe to my knowledge. And, and I'm not a chemist. You know, I'm a lawyer by uh-huh. training. But I do... You know, there there's definitely concerns about it when we think about what the long term ramifications of of the water are if there is potential groundwater contamination. There's also been a movement in Texas um, to really look at at produced water as sort of this untapped water resource to to supplement our water yeah. supply, uh, and this has come from a lot of different people around this state. You know, it's been a big topic at the legislature the last couple of legislative sessions, and it still gets traction as we think about, you know, what water supply in Texas looks like in the long term. We deal with a lot of flood the same way we deal with a lot of drought, and looking for drought-resilient or drought-resistant water supplies is something that the state thinks about. Um, And so, you know, the concept of is there a way to treat produced water so that it's usable for something else, it's talked about a lot, but there's not a lot of science to support any particular course of treatment. And that's true, you know, the same way that we think about storing the waste and injecting the waste it, it's sort of a double-edged sword, right? We're either losing water by putting it underground and hoping it stays there, or we have to figure out some way to get rid of it in a treatment and dis- other disposal process. So it's it's a very difficult situation to reconcile that water is a limited resource. We know that. And we spend a lot of it on fracking in the state of Texas. And what we do after that is is kind of up in the air. Now, whether or not we should be spending that much water on fracking is, you know, not, I'm probably not the one to say, yeah, let's keep doing it. <laughs> it's definitely a let's curtail fossil fuel um, production in Texas. But that's that's you know, only so practical compared to what do we actually do with this waste? It's wild to think about, you know, that that uh, oil is considered to be this this liquid that, you know, wars are fought over and, you know, so much money oh, goes yeah. into. And, you know, a great many of us realize that it's not going to be long before water becomes that liquid that wars are fought over and is, is precious down to every drop. And so that's, I think this is the, the first conversation where those two things have come the closest together for me personally. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's kind of scary. Yeah, and it you know, it's something that when we when we look at the drought that Texas could deal with, right? When we look at a drought of record and this realization that we would be potentially over I think it's over 7 billion acre feet short 
of water in the state, right? That's that's a lot of water to not have if we were in a drought of record. That means that there are cities without water supplies. That means that there are wells that are potentially dry in the state. It means that there's subsidence happening with insufficient aquifer recharge. Like there's a real problem when it comes to the amount of water that is consumed in the state. But it's also really, really important that before we turn to something like turning waste into water, that we we really think about the science behind it. And we really make sure that we're we're taking a cautious approach that isn't going to cause harm in the future, right? Some of the chemicals in produced water are carcinogens or long-term sure. toxics. Like we really don't know the long-term effects on exposure of exposure to produced water. And I think that before we really have any of that like chronic toxicity or chronic carcinogenic data, it's really hard to say, oh, we're prepared to treat it and, you know, send it to be a potable water supply or send it and use it for uh, for edible crops or to water livestock. Like there's really some real science that has to be done, whereas the state tends to sort of just avoid it and say it could be a miracle cure to our our water woes. Exactly. This is reminding me a little bit of the conversation around coal ash and just like the mismanagement of how this waste is disposed combined with a lack of regulation on the back end of that. What do you think about the difference between people are talking about how to use it and how to find another use for it when the place that it's already in is causing such damage to those around it. Like it's being disposed improperly at this current moment and we don't, we should be focusing on that instead of finding another way to use it. Yeah, yeah. No, so I I imagine what you're getting at is sort of like coal ash is already a huge groundwater risk. Why are we thinking about trying to to change the way we handle it? You know, there's definitely, I think, a, an understanding and and the thing about produced water that is so different is that it is water, right? There is water uh, and a substantial amount of water contained in produced water. That that is why it's called that. And so in in being able to recover some amount of it, we could see really substantial benefits to communities, especially communities in arid north and west Texas that are big oil and gas communities. And, you know, there's this all like alternative statement that is maybe we should be thinking about how to use less water, right? But generally, right, as water conservation, both at the municipal level or like our friends at the Texas Living Waters Project have really, you know, advocated for things like stopping municipal water loss, right? I think it's it's several gallons per connection per day on average that Texas loses because of water loss, leaky pipes, whatever you want to call it. And that's like a very tangible infrastructure repair funding could could solve that. Whereas when we look at produced water, it's sort of this like amorphous, unclear what we're working towards in terms of what the end goal is for it. And also, like, what the process is to get there, right? If if we were just going to talk about it from the perspective of oil and gas and, like, reuse, like, let's recycle it as much as we can in the fracking process, that happens quite a bit now. Um, oil and gas producers do use a fair chunk of produced water, treat it to the level that it needs to be to be reused in fracking. And that, you know, that's a pretty closed loop. That's not something that's going to make its way back into as long as the fracking is happening in a responsible groundwater risk minimizing way. But that's not a way that's going to sort of put us back into the potential contamination for exposure to people or wildlife or the the rest of the environment. And I think that that's sort of a, a just like an intrinsically different conversation to be having about water, right, which sustains cities and sustains people than when you think about something like coal ash and what to do with it. Um, yeah, I mean, for the coal ash conversation, absolutely, there needs to be significant regulatory reform. There's also like a great deal of wonky legal reasons that that doesn't happen, right? So speaking of which, let's kind of let's refocus to this thing that's going on in Crane County right now. The pictures that we've seen of it uh, are it looks like, you know, multiple acres of what's sort of turned into wetlands basically out there in the desert. And, you know, as we've been talking about, it's wet with this absolutely disgusting, gross stuff. 
this produced water. So Alex, tell us about what we're facing in terms of a risk to the groundwater in Crane County and the surrounding counties, actually. I mean, how much of this stuff does it take to like be foul an aquifer or whatever it might be, the groundwater that's coming up through people's wells? Yeah, you know, it it totally depends on aquifer formation and a lot of really intense groundwater science-y hydrology stuff that I'm not an expert in. But there is certainly a risk when you see a blowout like this that continues on for a prolonged period of time, especially when there's not really any way to to get at solving it and if there's insufficient testing, right? Um, I'm, I'm not positive about Crane County, whether or not it's in a groundwater management area or has a groundwater conservation district. There are mechanisms to, to get involved in some of that groundwater testing. But the mm-hmm. reality is that unless the Railroad Commission steps in, there's very large risks to not only the people surrounding it, but, you know, the groundwater itself, the people who rely on the groundwater. Yeah, it it it's really sort of uh, who knows when when the point of no return is. Wow. And 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 that's actually where I was going to go next. The Texas Railroad Commission has stepped in. Uh, but the way that they've stepped in, according to the journalism that we've seen about this, is they're basically I, I will stop just short of saying this is a cover up. But but it does appear as though they're interested in preventing people from flying drones or planes or helicopters or anything else over this area. Uh, they've gotten with the uh, the FAA to establish no fly zones that I believe have been increased in size as the increase of the size of the spill itself has increased. So uh, what do you think there? I mean, I, in 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 my mind drones don't even have people in them there's nothing you know you the, what you're risking is that you'll lose your your drone it's not a, a safety thing really at that point and your opinion how much of this is about kind of containing the information versus providing for pro, uh, public safety in any way yeah i i you know if i'm going to be really honest i don't i don't see a public safety merit in in that approach the railroad commission in texas is also not an agency known for transparency among, you know, the public. I, it, its name is the Railroad Commission, and it has nothing to do with railroads, right? right. Just like yeah. you said, Dave. We love saying that. I know. So <laughs> it's not, a, it, this is not like the bastion of transparency and public access in government when it comes to agencies that actually, you know, at least make a good faith effort to do that. I think there's also something to be said of the the Railroad Commission just trying to to contain it itself and its own prejudices or interests, right? I mean, w- there have been numerous stories over the years about oil and gas interests and conflicts of interest between commissioners or staff and and profits, right? Like there's there's a real problem with the way that the Railroad Railroad Commission and ethics rules work generally. And I think that, you know, trying to minimize the appearance of impropriety is often more important to the agency than solving actual problems that they are charged with regulating. That is such a great note to end on because our next question was actually about what the commission does. You've touched on that a little bit already, but what do you think Texans should be focusing on a little bit more regarding the Railroad Commission? Yeah, so, you know, the Railroad Commission is the agency responsible for for overseeing responsible, responsible, environmentally safe oil and gas production in Texas. And often, you know, the environmental safety and public safety and public health just go right out the window when it comes to oil and gas in Texas. It's, you know, as much production as we can get out as quickly as possible. In terms of what I think people need to be paying attention about, you know, Texans, it's really thinking really hard about who to vote for on for railroad commissioner, right? There's three railroad commissioners. They're elected officials. And we have a very clear say in who oversees this this agency. And so, you know, becoming familiar with with the intricacies of railroad commission rules 
is probably not for the everyday person. But thinking about realistically how you can make an impact in engaging your community, engaging, you know, your local landowners who may or may not have, you know, royalty agreements or lease agreements for groundwater rights, um, and, and realistically thinking about who to vote for and how to change what, what that reform looks like at the state level is is important because this is it's you know like i said they're elected officials they're not appointed by the governor this isn't something that requires gubernatorial change or even necessarily legislative change a lot of the problems with the railroad commission could be solved theoretically by change in leadership very good alex is there anything else that you'd like to share with us about this particular uh, event or or anything that the sierra club would like to get across before we wrap up um, you know, I I would just say that despite all of my talking about, you know, voting, it, Sierra Club hasn't endorsed a railroad commission candidate yet. And I, you know, do want to make sure we say that. Uh, and also, you know, to be, I think, mindful of what you hear about water, about produced water, because in so much of the state, when we talk about water infrastructure needs, they're very real and there's a very deep need for additional funding and for additional water supply capacity. But it's also worth digging in beyond a headline sometimes to to really get to the root of where is my water coming from? What are the risks to my water supply? What are the risks to my family and public health, depending on where my water supply comes from? There's a lot, and and that'll become, I think, more important as we see additional state focus on things like trying to treat and reuse produced water. Um, And that's something that the Railroad Commission will also have somewhat of a hand in, in developing those treatment standards and those regulations. And so it really goes back to being very intentional about knowing what's going on with your elected officials and trying to, you know, plug into advocacy where you can. If that means, you know, calling up a local org, a local community-based organization that has an opinion on it, or going and looking for a comprehensive railroad commission resource like Commission Shift. They, you know, follow the railroad commission very, very closely. And if you want to know, you know, any and everything there is to know about the railroad commission, Commission Shift is a great resource. If you're looking for more water-specific things, always check out Sierra Club's website, our partners at the Texas Living Waters Project. There's a lot of water-specific resources out there. Texas environmental expert Alex Ortiz, Sierra Club Lone Star Chapter Executive Committee member and Water Resources Chair. Alex, it's great to have you on for the first time, and let's do it again. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, y'all. As we shut down, we want to acknowledge our great and growing group of recurring Progress Texas donors, without whom we simply could not do what we do. We're asking you to show some love by becoming a recurring donor like Oswald Straub, uh, Leslie O'Loughlin, and Ken Rager have during our February member drive. We're looking for 29 new donors to support our important work this election year. Oswald, Leslie, and Kim, we thank all of you very, very much. Your donations are always welcome at progresstexas.org. If you're digging our podcast, a great and easy way to join the fight for progress in Texas is to share our podcast feed with a friend. If you're opinionated like Tatum and Alex and I are here, uh, please drop us a review and a five-star rating on the podcast platform of your choice. And thanks again so much for listening and for your support. Bye now. Bye now.